So how many people are ready for the word this morning? Awesome. We've been in a series, as you probably know, if you've been around, if you're newer, then you might not know that, but we've been in a series for a number of weeks now, and the series is called Timeless Truth. So if you wanted to catch up on any of the previous parts of this, you can do that on our website or YouTube channel. Uh, We've been traveling through the books of the Minor Prophets, and today, this week, is part nine. I'm actually going to end the series next week, so it'll end up being a 10-part series. If you're really paying attention, then you know there's actually 12 Minor Prophets, so there will be two that we don't dig into, but um, I'm really just been pleased with how this whole series has went and the way that I feel like it's uh, just accomplishing what God wants it to accomplish. And so today, we're going to dig in and we're going to visit with the prophet Hosea. Hosea. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them, kind of hold your place there, give you a little backdrop. Hosea ministered in roughly the mid-700s B.C. A lot of scholars say he had one of the longest runs of prophetic ministry it could have been anywhere between 40 and 60 years, which I can really appreciate because that's a long time to, to be ministering the way that he was. Um, Israel, the people that he's ministering to, the, the condition of the nation is not good. Now, it's an interesting dichotomy because economically, the nation is still doing well. They're not overrun by the conquering Assyrians yet that will eventually come not too many decades later, Uh, but they're still kind of in a time of economic prosperity, but they're in a time of total spiritual decay. There's, There's an erosion that's happening within, and that's always an important picture or pattern to see is that the spiritual fabric typically begins to deteriorate first, and the outward evidences of that end up falling later. And so we've got to be astute and discerning to God's ways to know when we're in His ways, when we're not in His ways, because the people have sort of a, mis- a mistaken idea of prosperity. They think because things are still pretty good that they're still pretty good, but they're not. Does that make sense? And so prophets were always sent to get people's attention, and so prophecy would warn, it would edify, and it would predict, and certainly that's the case with with Hosea. So the other part of this is that there's a unique story that's happening with Hosea. He is a man that God picks to go and take a wife who is actually a prostitute, what the Bible refers to as harlotry. And so she is a harlot. She's caught up in harlotry. She's living the life of harlotry. And sometimes when God is trying to get a message across to people, think about this, uh, he's got a message to give them, but sometimes he'll send a person whose life becomes the sermon. Okay? And that's what happens with Hosea. He takes a man of God, who is following in God's ways, and he sends him, which is very different. You don't see that a lot. He sends him to a woman who's caught up in harlotry, who's a prostitute, who's selling herself. And he says, I want you to go and take her as your wife. So this is kind of a picture of the lost soul. 
the unbeliever. She's lost in sin. She's away. Like she's, she doesn't even know where right is. And Hosea, his name means deliverance or salvation. <laughs> He's a forerunner, a prefigure, a type of Christ. And so he goes to bring her out of the darkness that she is in. The unbeliever is saved from the darkness and brought into God's marvelous light. But then afterward, after she becomes his wife, then she goes back into harlotry. She goes back into her old ways. And so what we begin to see now is we see a picture both of the unbeliever or the unsaved soul, but now the story of Hosea introduces the second layer of this, which is the backslider that God is reaching for as well. The person who was once there but has lost their way. We see this again in the story of the prodigal son. And so what I just want you to think about is that this is how good the grace and mercy and love of God is. He never stops pursuing us as long as there's still time. But there's time until there isn't time, right? And so that's what we need to get. So let's dive into the story, chapter 1, and keeping in mind that the, the family unit is being broken down. Family life is being redefined in culture for the people, and they consider this acceptable. Um, there's widespread immorality, and, and it's just okay. What was once done in secret is now kind of being done openly, and it's acceptable, and self-gratification rules the day. Pleasure is king. What's right for me is right for me. You don't have a right to tell me what's right for me. Does it sound familiar? It's just <laughs> saying, all right. <laughs> Timeless truth. <laughs> all right. Chapter one, verse one, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Bari in the days of Uzziah, Yotam, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. This is how we know when the dates that he ministered were and how long his ministry lasted. You don't always get chronology, but you do and many. So there it is. Verse 2. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Stop there. She ends up actually having three children, a son, a daughter, a son. We're going to talk quite a bit about them in a bit, but we're going to just look at something else before we get to that. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, have your way in this place today. I pray, God, that you would help us to shed off any, any distraction, competing thought, agenda. I pray that, Lord God, you would bind up anything that's not of you that might be in operation in someone's life, that it might not prevent your word from coming forth today and being sown into their heart come against any spirit of distraction, spirit of religion, come against anything, God, demonic, un that's foul, that's unholy, that's not of you. I ask that you would anoint me today, 
God, to preach your word. I, without your anointing in this office of this pulpit, God, then there's nothing of value that could come out of that. I'm aware, so aware. God, and I just pray that you would anoint me to do what you need me to do today here, God. Please give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you want us to hear and see. And so we say now, speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. All right, so he goes and he takes Gomer as his wife, and he marries her. And then she goes back into her ways. She kind of, you know, she sort of slips back and forth from what the story is showing. Not so different than what you see in in a lot of people's journeys. They kind of get on track and they get on fire for God. And what seems like happens most of the time is not some really hard, difficult situation that comes up that throws people off. What actually seems to happen, (laughs) this is kind of crazy, but is that things start going really well. And then people get complacent, and then they get comfortable, right? And then the enemy comes along, and he lures us away. Most of the time, it's very subtle in the beginning, but it's designed to just kind of take our heart and our orientation and and just sort of pull it away from moving towards God, and the enemy's always trying to move us away from God. It's interesting because in the story, if you read it, you'll see this. It says, I think it's in chapter 5, it says that there is a spirit of harlotry in the land. A spirit of harlotry. It's not a euphemism. It's, it's, we're literalists, right, with the Bible. And in most cases where it starts there, you start with literal interpretation. And so it's a demonic stronghold uh, in the land. That there is a spirit in operation that is trying to lead people away and, and I would tell you that I believe that's still a spirit that is operating in the world today, right? Because Satan's demonic forces are still trying to destroy everything that God wants to do. You say, well, that seems a little wild and crazy, Pastor. Well, I just go by what the Word of God says. And it says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, spiritual hosts of wickedness, rulers of darkness of this present age, nothing, things that are not earthly. So there's demonic operation that's happening, right? And so this spirit of harlotry is, it's, it's pulling, of course, Gomer away, but it's pulling Israel away. And so there's, all, there's, that, there's that foreground, and then there's the background of what's happening. And you, you see that all the time in Scripture. Here's Hosea and Gomer. Here's God and his people. And it's, it's a picture that's, getting our attention. So the spirit of harlotry is in operation, and she goes back into this place where she starts, what's the word, harloting, I guess? So she starts doing what she's been doing. I don't know. (laughs) Look it up. I don't know. Yeah. There were some other ones that didn't seem appropriate that came to mind. Um. And so she starts going back to what she was doing, but I want to read these verses to you 
so that you can see what she was trying to accomplish, like what she was thinking she was going to gain or get from going back to these places. So go to chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 5. For she has said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Now God starts to speak here through the prophet. He says, therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so she cannot find her paths. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. And then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband. For then it was better for me than now. For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold which they had prepared for Baal. So the idea of harlotry is that one is selling themselves to try to gain something from that. They put a price on themselves and they're willing to sell it to obtain something. And so Gomer, is, she's going back to her ways, and, and she says she's pursuing and chasing after her lovers for her oil, for her wine, for her drink, for her food, for her covering. What does that mean? It, it, it means that in her mind, she's still kind of trapped in this way of thinking that is leading her to believe that she can get and obtain the needs that she has from sources available to her in the world. And God says, I'm going to frustrate those plans. Because at the end of that rope, at the end of that tunnel, there's always another tunnel. There's always another rope. It's the deception and the trickery and the scheming of a cunning enemy to make a person think, I can satisfy the needs that I have in me by going after them in some ungodly manner or way of this world. And it's a temptation and it's a trick. And God says, those needs can never be met outside of me. Now I want to encourage you with something today. If you're here and maybe you're struggling with finding you know, acceptance or love or direction and purpose, whatever it might be, and you're searching for those, much like Gomer is searching for things to fill her, that God has created you to need such things. So it is not a surprise that we would go searching to find them. Are you following me? But He's created us to need, to desire, to crave such things by His design, so that we will look for and find Him. Because He alone is the only one who can supply the grain, the oil, the wine, the bread, the covering, identity, peace, joy, purpose, love, unconditionally. 
So what God has created us to need that he intends to supply and fill and sustain, the enemy always comes along and tries to create a counterfeit to make us think that will end up satisfying that need that we have that God's actually created us with. And it's deception. So people go along and they continue in the patterns and the routines of unholy things and as he says later in, this cha- in these chapters, he says, and they're basically chasing after the wind. Because it's, it's, it's not tangible. It's not really there. It's a fog. It's an illusion. We think we see something that's not really there. We think we're going to get something that we can't really get. There's that momentary satisfaction or pleasure that sin brings. We all probably could say we understand what that is. And that's the trick. But it it just keeps... You get what I'm saying? You keep drinking from a polluted well, you're going to keep poisoning yourself. So my son Dax, this was funny. We were... were The kids were playing with some of their friends... And uh, riding bikes and such. And one of the little girls brought down one of those, she brought down a bottle of water. It was one of those smart waters, you know, seen those. And so she left it laying on the sidewalk and I was just standing there watching and Dax walks over, he picks it up and he looks at it. He goes, huh, smart water, that's great. thinks it's going to make him smart. I just (laughs) thought that was funny. I heard about a guy that was suing that company. He'd been using their product for a year. turns out it doesn't work. (laughs) But sometimes we we can just be tricked to think that we're going to get something out of something that's not there to get, right? If God created us to need something, then we need it. But if he alone provides it, then every other source of provision for that would be dysfunctional, would be defiled, would ultimately lead us to a path of destruction. So that's what she's doing. It it says that um, this path that Israel is on of harlotry and adultery away from God I found this really interesting. It says that it has enslaved their hearts or the spirit of harlotry has enslaved their hearts, which really means that they're caught up. They're, they're really bound up in this thing. You know, the enemy will introduce a type of temptation. It's, let's say it's bait, right? It's what it is. It's like a trap. And then when a person takes it, Let's say that's the first offense. They, they walk into that sin. Now, we could turn right around and get forgiven and, and just come back from that right then. But many times that's not what happens. People keep walking. And so then this thing kind of becomes this full-blown behavior and lifestyle of sin. All of a sudden now it's justifiable. It's right. You know what I'm saying? It's just what the enemy introduces is a foothold that gets somebody he intends to eventually build a whole stronghold around that. And so it says their hearts are enslaved 
It says that they've set their hearts on iniquity and that they are bent on backsliding. And just, I want you to hear that because I want you to realize that this is something we've got to be aware of. It's something the enemy wants to lead people to. Uh, Paul says in Timothy that there is a day that's coming when men will become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And so when pleasure exalts God, we're, we're headed down a slippery slope. And that's basically where Israel is at. He says their faithfulness is like a morning cloud. I don't ever want my faithfulness to be like that. You know what a morning cloud is, right? Sometimes you wake up and it's just like a little bit of mist and you see it for a minute and then the sun comes and it's just, it's gone. It's like, where'd it go? There's no sign it was even there. He says their faith is like that. It's flighty. Man, there's just such a passion in me for this is that we got to get some grit. <laughs> we got to get some stiction some rootedness in our faith in the church in the Western world today, right? Like, like faithfulness that's not flighty, faithfulness that's not like the morning cloud says there's some things coming against me in culture. It's really uncomfortable. It's really difficult to stand for what I believe, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to do it anyway because this is what's right. This is what's kingdom. I'm not going to go with culture. I just think that we're going to see a day or if we're around until the end before Christ comes back, we know we'll see it where it's just going to be a, it's just going to be a party where it's just the flighty ones are going to be over here and there's nobody wants to be known for their faith. And then the ones who really have the faith in God are going to see it through to the end. He says, you just, faithfulness is like a morning cloud. And I think that that's part of the reason why sometimes people get led astray they don't, they don't let their faith grow deep. They don't, they don't get mature in their spiritual muscle and in their inner man, right? That's something that continues to grow in us. And so if it's, if it's flighty, then the next thing that comes along, they find themselves chasing. Well, that'll, that'll meet that need. That'll satisfy that. He even says later on in this book, he says that they actually... Uh, they try to go find new grain and new wine and new oil. What does that mean? It, it doesn't mean, they're, in this case, they weren't going to God to really find it. It just says they were looking somewhere else to get it when they couldn't get it where they were looking before. They're, they're just trying to find the new fad, the new ideology, the new philosophy, the new way of thinking of enlightenment that's going to really solve my problems and get me to where... I want to be. You're looking for it here, looking for it there. It's this new fad, this new thing they're chasing. Meanwhile, we have got the rock of ages, the ancient of days, the sure-footing foundation of the Word of God that never changes, never has, and never will, that we can stand on, and it's the only thing that we can stand on that's not sinking sand. Oh, but they're just chasing it all, you know. And find the grain here, find the wine here. Hello. <laughs> we were, we, some guys in the church, we had golf tournament this week. And uh, there were several teams, and each team is like a, a foursome. And there was one point where I just, I just started laughing. 
You know, I was like, that'll make for a good message illustration. And uh, everybody knows that it's always fair game when you're with me, right? Whatever happens, it's message material, potentially. <laughs> so we're on the course, and <laughs> there was just this particular, and they got these new devices now that track, they can tell you the distance from wherever you're at on the hole to the tee, or to the pin. And so there's this one point where this one guy, he's, he's got his watch, you know. He's like, all right, I'm, I'm, it's like 166 yards to the, to the green to the pen. And then the other guy, he's over here, he's got his app. He's like, man, I'm getting 169 yards from right here. And then the other guy, he's got the laser range finder. He's like, guys, I'm getting 171. I don't know what you're talking about. It's like a five minute conversation, right? And I'm into it too. I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious which one it is too now. <laughs> Did I, but then none of us even got close. Like it was, <laughs> it's like what's important what's important is to be able to hit the ball right and straight that's we're just going to all these devices and these things we got and it's not really changing anything i guess is what i was trying to say there but you know as we go down this path it's harlotry always leads to estrangement Right? Think about that in an unfaithful marriage or relationship. When a heart starts to drift and go somewhere else, th- then it's equally pulling away from the other place that it was. And so when Israel's heart or when Gomer's heart is going towards their lovers, then it's, it's going away from God at the same time. And that's always what an unholy spirit will do. It will drive people away from God and try to keep them separated from knowing God more. Meanwhile, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is always interested in drawing us closer to God, right? Those things are contrary, always at odds. And so uh, it's, it leads them away, and then the further that they go or that people go, the more desensitized they get, to hearing the voice of God, the spirit of conviction, the way of truth. I've seen it happen tons of times. How did you get there over time? Continuing down that path, right? So, um, so it leads to estrangement. And then God says this. He says, if you're going to keep going down that path, this is in chapter 4, verse 7, if you want to write it down, he says, I will change your glory into shame. Right? This is a powerful truth <laughs> that we have to get. You, I, you can't sidestep these things as a pastor, right? Like God says there's a point where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remove the blessing. I'm, I'm going to pull my hand off. You, you see that all through Scripture. God removed his hand. Where is your hand? Like, you see it all over. He says, I'm going to turn your glory into shame. So the glory of God or the favor and the blessing of God is meant to mark his people. Meant to be known by the favor and the blessing of God in our lives. It doesn't mean everybody's millionaires. It just means that, man, there's just something about you. There's just something about your life. There's something about your consistency, your endurance, your faith, your joy, your peace. 
We are marked by God's anointing and by the glory that he puts on us. He says, I'm going to turn it into shame. This is what we have to understand is that God says, okay, I'm to be known by the way you live in my ways and by the blessing that flows as a result of that. If you choose not to do that, then I'm going to pull my blessing. And this is what you see many times in Scripture. God says, but my glory still needs to be known. How is it known now? It's known by the consequences and the destruction that starts to fall on God's people who have turned from his ways. So the nations around still see evidence of God. Oh, the protection is off. They're walking in waywardness now. Does that make sense? He says, I'm going to turn the glory into shame. He actually says it another way. He says, their, their glory shall fly away like a bird. And this one pierces my heart. He says, it's like they're carrying their oil back to Egypt. Mm. Carrying their oil back to Egypt. It's like they've got this precious anointing and glory. And they're just taking it back and relinquishing it for something inferior that they think is going to bring them what they need. He says, and and when that happens, they are left like lambs in open country. No protector, no provider. They're scattered and they're on their own. Meanwhile, God is inviting us to come into this place where he is the one meeting all of those needs for us. And listen to this one. Chapter 8, verse 11. It says that they have made many altars for sin, and now they have become altars for sinning. Let me break that down for you. I, I, I really hope you remember this one. They have made many altars for sin, and they have now become altars for sinning. Let me give you an illustration first. Let's say um, somebody gets a new job. And in order to get to that job, they have to have a car. They need the job to make the money, right? Whatever. They've got to have a car. So they buy a car or get a car to get to their job. But before long, in that car... They're driving all around town. They're doing all kinds of things with it, right? They made an altar for sin. They permitted something in culture, in society, in their life. And they let it stick around. And then all of a sudden, because it's there, guess what happens? It becomes an altar for sinning. Now it produces more behavior. It produces more unholy sacrifices. Say it like that. I think that much of what we see today that is so off based on God's word, and that's what I go from, what is so off about gender confusion, you know, What's, what's led us to the place where right now, according to gender, whatever.org, there's 107 genders that are sexual identities that people could relate to. Listen, I think the same logic that told us it was okay 
for a woman to marry a woman and a man to marry a man is the same altar. It's the same logic that's led us further down this place where we're even more confused now. Because the same logic that said, no, I can do what I want. It's right for me. You can't tell me it's not. It's, it's the same stuff that's happening over here. Do you see that? Altars for sin become, altars that are created for a sin become altars for sinning. And so God's just, he's like, this is all wrong. Like this is, you, we got to get back to where I am calling you to be. And if you walk in my ways and you walk with me, he says, so, and he says in here, you will know me. That's what he wants to know in the Hebrew, it's, it's not just head knowledge on an intellectual level that's part of it, but it goes deeper. It actually means experiential knowledge. I think in the church today, we need a lot more experiential knowledge and not just head knowledge about theological matters. <laughs> experiential knowledge it's yes i know about you but i know you do you see the difference let me give you one more adam knew eve same word intimacy closeness and nearness i know about you but i know you and god says that's what i have for you that's what i have for you but to be close to me you got to walk in my ways you walk away from my ways you walk away from that nearness and that closeness. So Gomer has three kids. It's not, it's not clear. I don't think most people don't think if it was by Hosea or her lovers, it doesn't say, but she has three kids. Clearly God says, take these children as your own. The names of the three kids, they, they get your attention right off the bat. And you, you understand God, names are a really big deal, right? Sometimes God gives a name, and he gives a name that he intends on later changing. And in the process of changing, there's a picture that we see, something about God that becomes more clear. Abram is an is a exalted father, Abraham is a father of a multitude or a father of a nation. So God was just pulling him up to a higher place. Jacob was a deceiver or supplanter. Israel is one who's wrestled with God or a prince with God. So there's, there's always these important things in God shifting. So the names of these three children, they end up changing in what God does. So let me tell you what the names of the three are, what they mean. So that you can see, God showed me this picture. These, these are three things that people are chasing after that are God-created needs in them. But they're trying to fill them with all these other things in the world. The first child was Jezreel, or Yezreel, which means God scatters. Let me tell you what that means. That means that they are directionless, scattered. They're all over the place. They're not planted they're scattered, means they don't have direction or they don't have purpose. God has created us to connect with his purpose for our lives. We have a purpose and a calling. 
And there's no doubt people are trying to find that all over the place in so many things. So he says, and the first child is that they, they're starved for direction. They're starved for purpose. They don't have it. It's the meaning of the name. Second child, lo ramuna, or rumana, which means no mercy or no love. Starved for love, unconditional love. And the third child is lo ami, which means no, uh, not my people. Not my people. Not accepted or no identity. So things that are birthed in the life of harlotry and going away, we see is that it's not going to give us purpose, it's not going to give us love, and it's not going to give us identity. But people are chasing those things because God's creators to need them, but to fill them with so many things in this world. But he says, when you, when you come to me and you come back to me, so for the first time or coming back, just like God always does, he begins to restore what was broken. Doesn't he? How many can testify to that, right? Like, I, don't, I can't even tell you how. It's a miracle. But God has taken what was wrong, what was bad, what was broken, and he has now turned this thing around, and it's just become something beautiful in my life because he's a restorer. That's what he does. He's great. So listen to what he does. Chapter 2, go to verse 21. He says, And it shall come to pass in that day, meaning when they come back to him, that I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, new wine, oil. You see all the new blessings begin to flow, right? What was available before that they walked out from under is being reinstated and now they're getting covered again. It's flowing again into their life. They shall answer Yezreel and then I will sow her for myself in the earth, which means I will plant her for myself in the earth. I will give her direction. I will give her destiny and purpose. So, not scatter. I will have mercy or love on him who had not obtained mercy or who was outside of love. And then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they shall answer, you are my God. So, what started out as starved for purpose, starved for love, starved for identity has now become in God. You have a purpose. You are loved. You'll always be loved. And you are accepted. You are my child. You are in my family. And we get everything that we truly need from Him and no other source. And that alone is when we become totally satisfied. I know I can't get it anywhere else. And I'm getting it from the place that I can get it. And I'm sustained and satisfied the way I'm supposed to. Hmm. He is a restorer of all things. But he says, in order to call them back to this place, he says, you've got to return to me. And I will return to you. For the lost and perishing soul, I would say, come to him for the first time. And he will meet you 
where you are. Come to me and I will return to you. He says, you have to break up your fallow ground, which is hardened ground. This is a picture of repentance. You have, you have to be sorrowful for what you recognize has been wrong, where you've erred, where you've sinned. There's, there's got to be repentance in order for that person to come to God's forgiveness. This is a major screw-up in theology that, that happens in a lot of places where we, we think there's grace without, or we think that there's forgiveness without repentance. Forgiveness is a response to repentance, and repentance is a response to conviction. Does it make sense? And so he says, you got to break up your follow ground. He says that they, they have to seek me in their affliction, and I will hear them not until, listen to this, they acknowledge their offense. You can't be forgiven for something you're not sorry for, right? I mean, I can't go and if I'm not sorry, how am I going to ask for forgiveness? And so he says, you, you, they, gotta, they have to come to me in their understanding of the wrong they've done. And this is just huge, huge passion point that I have where it's like, man, we, we got to get people to understand there's this, there's this big lie, there's this big trap that's uh, just kind of part of some sort of surface level teaching. I would say it's like incomplete teaching where it's, and it's, it's misleading and it's dangerous all the same where people could think I can have all the blessings and all the grace and all the goodness of what God uh, intends for me to have, all the, uh, the rewards of what he offers, and I don't have to change anything about what I'm doing. And it's just not true. It's just not true. I'll close with this. Jump over to chapter 14, and I want you to see it. Their response. Uh, read, start in uh, verse 4. He says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from him. I will be like the dew. To Israel, he shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread, his beauty shall be like an olive tree, and his fragrance like Lebanon. Those who dwell under his shadow shall return. Listen to this they shall be revived, which means to be reawakened, to see what was there all along and begin to see it clearly again. Grow like a vine, their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon, and Ephraim shall say, which is a picture for Israel, what have I to do with idols anymore? Transformed life. You can always see the fruits of genuine repentance and forgiveness. You hearing me? Because people don't keep doing the same things. He says, that's the response. Well, what are we to do with idols anymore? We're going to have to change our ways, guys. We can't keep doing what we were doing. God's forgiven us. We've seen that it's wrong. Now, now, we, need to, now we need to stop doing it. It's as basic as it gets. 
right? And God says, it's, it's, so when, you, when they change their ways, when they go in a different direction, now they're headed down this path where the blessings of God and the covering of God can, can just continue to flow in their lives and over them, and they will be the marked people of destiny that they were always created to be. Hmm. He has healed their backsliding. So this, this story and this message really, it's a call to the unbeliever and it's also a call to the backslider. And it's a picture of God and how good he is to his people. Jesus is the groom who never stops pursuing never stops loving, and never stops going after us. There's time until there's not time. The grace is available until one of two things happens. Either we die a mortal death, and the time for choosing is over, or Jesus comes back. Until those two things happen, there's still time.